Welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. And today I am thrilled to have on the show the VP of Marketing at Clean.io, Kathleen Booth. Kathleen, what is up? Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing with this podcast, and I am so honored that you asked me to come on. It is great to have you on the show. I feel like we've been kind of like hanging out from afar for several years now, and it's great to connect. And so we're going to get right into it. I have a really interesting place to start. I think that one um, really interesting, cool thing about you is that you've been in the game for a long time. And so, <laughs> is that and your nice way of saying that I'm old? <laughs> that, no, that's a, it's, a, it's a really good thing. You've seen a tremendous amount of change going on in the in the B2B marketing landscape over a, of a period of time. And that's one of the things that I'd like to uh, to dive into you with. So Let's get started. I know that you started a agency around 2006 timeframe. We'd love to talk about the the journey there and then try and hit on the points about like critical shifts and things that you saw across the way until we are right now in how B2B companies should execute marketing in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I'll try to keep it short because it's it's a pretty long story. But um, I and I have a weird career journey because I came out of international development consulting. Um, I was working, you know, all over the world, mostly in the developing world on water privatization. I did my MBA and studied marketing and international politics, and so about halfway through that career, I actually started working more on the marketing side because I realized these projects were going off the rails and it was because of poor communication at the outset. And so that started to like rope me back into marketing. Mm -hmm. And there came a point when I was getting married and thinking about having kids and realized I can't keep traveling, you know, to Africa for two months at a time and have a baby. And so I had this midlife career crisis. My husband and I started an agency, as you said, in 2006, which was the year my son was born. Nice. And, um, and when we first started it, we weren't doing a lot of digital marketing and it wasn't really until the recession that started around 2008, 2009, that we found ourselves sitting around with a lot of time on our hands and not a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget. I went to this marketing conference and I went to a session and it was about like social media and they talked about blogging and I came out of it and I looked at my husband and I was like, well, this is something we can do and we don't need budget and we have a ton of time right now. So let's see what happens if we start a Facebook page for ourselves. We start Twitter. What were you doing before? I'm just curious from like 2006 until then, what were some of the things and just to root the conversation to clarify on whether were you doing those to grow your own business or were you doing those things for your clients? We were doing client work. Um, My husband had come out of a different agency that did a lot of like, it was like high end corporate gifting and giveaways. So Mm -hmm. he worked with a lot of like the largest commercial real estate companies in the U S on, and a lot of it involved promotional products, but I hate that term because it sounds, it sort of sounds like it cheapens it. He was doing really high end, like ABM campaigns, corporate gifting, Mm -hmm. like tenant appreciation and, and, but all of it sort of had to do with involving a physical product. So even until the end of our the time we owned our agency in 2017, half of it really was still that. And it's funny to this day, we don't have the company anymore, but we still have one or two clients that love working with him. And so we, on the side, he still does that work. <laughs> but yeah, so we, so we started our own, you know, now I can call it inbound marketing, mm-hmm. but nobody called it that in those days. And it was shortly after, you know, HubSpot even started as a company. 
and, and we were doing it pretty well for ourselves. And, and some of our clients started to ask us to help them with it for them. Mm-hmm. And so that, Which is the best way to develop a service, by the way, right? To figure out how it works for you and then figure out how to package it and, and use it for other people. Sorry, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do that a lot, but I just love putting little notes in there. I think that's great. It's true. And then you're not learning on the job with your customer. You know, you're your own guinea pig, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started a digital marketing agency side of our business at that point. And very quickly it took off because there wasn't really anybody doing it or very few. Um, in the beginning, we were local. I'm, I'm based here in Annapolis, Maryland. And very fast, we, we saw that there was demand outside of the area. We became a HubSpot partner, I think in like it was either 2010 or 2011, which in and of itself was a differentiator back in those days. Certainly not anymore, <laughs> but we we were one of their first 20, I think, platinum partners in the world. It was a great partnership for us. And, and I would say that that relationship really drove the business for a long time, you know, and certainly we wound up doing things outside of that. But uh, we really played in that B2B lead gen game for probably 10 years-ish. And then there started to come a point, and I'm sure you've seen this in terms of, you asked me about shifts, where inbound marketing was no longer like a shiny new approach. It, it became table stakes. Mm. And as an Love agency- the term table stakes, by the way. <laughs> yeah. As an agency, you know, helping clients with content and basically gen strategies was not that much of a differentiator. So we were kind of faced with this moment in time where- I knew if we wanted to grow and keep going, we were either going to have to really niche down and focus on something specific, or I basically was going to get out because I, I didn't want to be, I, I saw the agency world starting to commoditize. commoditize. That's exactly what I was thinking, especially yeah. when you think about just like the HubSpot inbound SEO content marketing gated ebook model. Yes. 100% table stakes, 100% commoditized. Yeah. And it was a race to the bottom and I didn't want to be in that. And, and at the same time, I was on the board of the Maryland Tech Council and I had a lot of clients who were, you know, cybersecurity companies were close to NSA here. And so we, mm-hmm. we get a lot of that. And if I was going to niche down, I was going to become a cybersecurity marketing agency. And we started down that path, but I also was seeing just B2B software and technology. I was like, man, those margins are a lot nicer than agency <laughs> margins and it's so scalable. And so I had an opportunity, funny enough, through my podcast, I, I started my podcast, which is the Inbound Success Podcast. And I interviewed Bob Ruffalo, who, who is the owner of Impact, an agency. And before we started, even with the interview, we were just chit-chatting and I told him I was thinking about making a change. And he kind of said, if you do that, just give me a call. And I could tell he was serious. It wasn't mm-hmm. like just some offhand comment. So I'll cut to the chase. He wound up purchasing the agency from me. I spent two years working there, kind of like working out my pipeline. And then I worked as his first head of marketing uh, and he had this vision to build out a media company around his agency, which I was so excited about. Cause I mean, I, I sold my agency to get out of the agency world Mm-hmm. And what kept me in was this notion he had of like starting this whole new business around the agency and doing something really different. So it was mm-hmm. a ton of fun. I did it for two years. And then I finally left to pursue what I originally was thinking of doing, which was going in-house as head of marketing for a series of B2B technology companies, mostly around the series A stage because mm-hmm. I'm still an entrepreneur at heart. So I love that. Stage. Yeah. And that was amazing. So a little recap here, and then I'd like to talk through a couple more of the details. So like Early mid 2000s, I believe, was really a time where it was conferences and predictable revenue outbound. Yeah. That's pretty much what it was. Inbound marketing 
comes along, a lot of companies start moving into the thing where you do SEO and content and different things like that. At what point do you feel like that started to slow down? Like the 2014, 16, that type of time frame. That's yeah, when content, I started to feel it. The content saturation point. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do think it was probably, yeah, 2013, 2014. What, what I saw happening was not only more people creating content, but a lot of crappy content, yeah. like a lot of check the box approach. Like, oh, we need, we know we need to blog. And so we're going to go out and hire somebody to Google a topic and write a blog mm-hmm. on it. So we're not adding any value, but we're checking the box that we've talked about at the topic. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel like when that started to happen, that was when it all went south. The content quality was terrible. There was a lot of it. There's a, a lot of noise. The eBooks, I hope I can say this word on here, but they sucked. Yeah. We ruined it. We can, go, because, we can go way more explicit than sucks. Yeah, I mean, okay, they fucking sucked. <laughs> um, and I, I, I rant about this because, like, this is marketers ruin, ruining everything. Like, people mm. used to fill out forms a lot, and mm-hmm. now people are really jaded and really skeptical because it's it's the whole um, boy who cried wolf, yeah. where where we've made them fill out too many forms only to give them the world's worst ebook. Mm-hmm. So fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. They're not filling out forms anymore. You mentioned table stakes. What do you feel like are other things that today, May 21st, 2021, that fall into the category of table stakes for a B2B marketing organization? For me, it all starts with two things. The first is is a really strong sense of, of why and like the vision, mission, values side of it. And then taking that why, really passionately embracing it and fearlessly embracing it. And then from that, creating a brand that's different by design mm-hmm. and really reflects in an authentic way the values you have as a company. To me, those are the two things that if you do nothing else, you need those two things. Mm-hmm. What about at a, like at a tactical level where I think about them as, as mature channels that are past their prime, that companies still continue to do, that most likely are not going to be the the growth lever that gets you to the next stage. Like yeah. SEO, I believe to be one of those in the camp. I think that email, automated email marketing, followed through the ebook play is another one that falls into that. Paid search. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot changing right now. Like we're having this conversation at an interesting time because they're going away and retargeting, which a lot of people have leaned on as a crutch for a long time is not going to work as well. You know, it's interesting. Some of the things you mentioned, like in no particular order. So email, Mm -hmm. I do think that like the classic email nurturing playbook is very stale, but I actually think there's some phenomenally innovative stuff happening in the world of email today. Like there's mm-hmm. some amazing newsletters. You look at companies that have been built purely as email plays, like the skim mm-hmm. and the hustle and the morning brew, and then some other, you know, just company <laughs> newsletters that are totally not what we ever thought a company newsletter would look like. Like I always mm-hmm. mention CB insights newsletter, which is a, a very like high level, really smart, technically in-depth newsletter, but the guy signs off on it every day with, I love you. Mm-hmm. Like who does that? It's <laughs> awesome. You know? Yeah. What do you think the difference is between what most companies are doing and that, right? I think it truly comes down to the level of intent or the intent of what they're trying to do, right? Those companies that you mentioned that you think are doing great, they're there to distribute content that people love. They're acting like a media company, as some people would say, versus trying to shove people through an automated flow, like they move through a funnel. 
Yeah, I think that's, that's the difference. That's very true. So it's two things. One is that a lot of the companies I mentioned, as you said, they are doing a media play, which, and I've I've talked a lot about this. I feel like it could be a whole separate podcast, mm-hmm. but that's really about building your audience first, having an audience first mentality, because this is what media companies do. They build mm-hmm. an audience and then they, and then monetize, they monetize it later. Exactly. And if you have a big audience, you can start to introduce products and you have a ready-made pool of people who are, who are going to buy them. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of like, flipping it on its head approach where it's not product and then audience, it's audience and then product. But then the second thing is to be totally candid, they're not hiding behind an opaque corporate logo. It's Mm. not like the newsletters aren't coming from contact at, and they're not using a bunch of jargon. Right. And (laughs) it it goes back to what I said earlier about authenticity. And they're Mm -hmm. not afraid to put themselves out there in a way that might not be considered quote unquote normal in the industry. Like when I owned my agency, I heard people say this all the time. I worked with law firms who would be like, oh, oh, we can't use that color on our website because it's not normal in our industry. (laughs) And I was like, who cares what's normal? Isn't that the point? Yeah. Do you want to look like everyone else? (laughs) I can do that really Mm -hmm. easily, but that's not going to get results. And so being true to that, your vision, mission, and values and not being afraid. It's that fearlessness of like putting yourself out there in a way that nobody else in your industry has, as long as it rings true and feels right. I think that's where the magic really happens. Mm -hmm. I think the fascinating thing about a majority of media companies is that the monetization model is based on attention, not on selling a product. And so therefore like they make more money when more people that are the right people pay attention, which is the mindset that I think B2B companies need to have because it leads to consideration of their products in the future. But yeah. companies don't think like that. And I think that's an interesting sort of like like nuance there. There's another really interesting one, which is that I, I did a lot of research into this when I was building this media brand at Impact. So when you think about media models, mm-hmm. most of them, we talk about them like it's subscription, Right. But there's an interesting nuance between subscription and membership. And the difference is that when somebody subscribes, they are looking to consistently derive value out of that subscription on whatever frequency they're paying for it. So if mm-hmm. it's, you know, if it's your newspaper and you're paying weekly or what have you, you want to get value weekly. If you stop reading that newspaper, you're going to churn. It's the same thing with me, any kind of media. Mm-hmm. When you when you flip it and you think about it as membership. What drives membership is the feeling of belonging and people don't churn from membership if they don't get value on a regular basis because they joined not for weekly value. They joined because they want to be a part of a movement or something larger than themselves. And so Mm -hmm. what's fascinating when you look at the media world is there are some media properties that are actually doing this really well. And the one I always point to is the Washington Post. So when I was living in DC, I subscribed to the Washington Post and I and I churned because I stopped. Who has the time to read that all the time, right? <laughs> but in the last eight years, no coincidence, they they made some moves. Uh, one of them was to introduce a new tagline: "Democracy dies in darkness." And all of a sudden, just with that subtle shift, it became more of a membership play than a subscription play. And people started buying subscriptions because they wanted to support something bigger than the daily news they got in that newspaper. It was about being a part of a movement. So I get the Washington Post now, and I probably read the whole thing twice a month, but I'm not going to give up my subscription because I'm a member of this movement. And so that really goes back to my first point about brand and your why and your vision. Mm -hmm. And I think marketers can learn a lot from that because if you're not giving somebody a reason to believe in something larger than the day-to-day value you deliver, 
it, the, the pressure will constantly be on for mm-hmm. you to prove the worth of whatever they're getting from you. Mm-hmm. And brand has 100% always been important, but my feeling is that the places where brand gets built have shifted over the course of time. And then another thing that happened is in the B2B landscape, there was this period of time from like 2007 onwards where it became, there was way less tracking and then it became all digital, fully tracked, and we skewed way too far onto this performance marketing straight line to conversion type of thing that actually incentivizes marketers not to build brand. (laughs) Um, And so I think that it's one of the biggest opportunities in B2B right now to break the existing model that where attribution rules everything, where you must have all those different things, because if you have those things, then you're not going to do a podcast. You're not going to thoughtfully post and bring value on LinkedIn or do an email newsletter that's that's really valuable because you're not going to see the short-term performance-driven metrics that you're looking for. And so would love to go a little bit deeper on that topic with you. Yeah, um, I totally agree with you. Uh, and anybody who follows me on LinkedIn would probably recognize this because I invest a lot of time there. And it's it's a very long-term thing. Like I do believe in, like I'm a huge fan of Adam Grant's give and take and the whole philosophy of that book. It's not a marketing book. It's a life book. It's about like success comes from a, a giving first mentality. And I think that applies to marketing. But um there's somebody who who has I think nailed this, which is Kyle um, Lacey, who's the CMO yeah. at Lessonly. He he's talks about how he's been able to reserve 25% of his marketing budget for this exact thing, brand. And and there's an agreement within the company that they're not going to even try to track ROI on it. And by lifting that obligation. It has given his team license to do unbelievably creative things to really, I think, pave a different pathway that stands out and and has made them very, very successful. But what's so tricky about that is that only works if you really have buy-in to the very top of your organization. Like you, as a marketing leader, you need to think about this when you're taking a job. Like, do you have a CEO who understands the value of that sort of thing, or is at least open to hearing alternative viewpoints and and Mm -hmm. is open-minded enough that you could educate them about why that's so important. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't have that, you're you're not going to be able to to have that sort of a playground. Yeah. And you need two things, right? You need buy-in and the 75% that you are measuring needs to be working. That's very true. (laughs) Yes. And and you you raise a really, really good point, which I don't want to make light of because it's not that performance marketing isn't important. It's just that when it takes over as the sole focus, it can really be a perverse incentive, Mm -hmm. as you said, to put all your resources in a very short-term basket. And marketing, Mm -hmm. good marketing is a mix. It has to be a mix of really long-term and Mm short-term. Yeah. The fascinating thing that I continue to see is that when you act long-term, you actually get better short-term results too, Yeah. right? And so by even by building brand, if you look at actual revenue, not on leads or different, you know, SALs or different things like that, that you actually get better outcomes by just doing brand activities anyway. Yeah. And so that's sort of where I've, where I've transitioned. It just becomes more difficult to measure in the system that companies have created. I, I noticed that you made a little lead in here to a topic that I wanted to cover anyway, which was you know, buy-in at the executive level as a marketing leader, right? And this actually, I've been a non-marketing leader with a CEO that doesn't get marketing too. And so this can go across the whole organization, but 
let's just talk through because there's numerous people that really feel this way. And I've faced it myself, both with a CEO that really gets it and a CEO that really doesn't and how much different it is both for the performance of your organization, but also for the performance of your career. And so would love to uh, hear yeah. your thoughts on that. Boy, I have some great stories and some some terrible ones. And I'll start with the terrible because I think this really illustrates the point. Um, since I left owning my own business, I've worked in a variety of different places and, and some for short amounts of time because of COVID. So I've had this really interesting experience in the last few years. And I've only been fired once in my entire career. And it was in one of the B2B tech companies I worked in in the last few years. And it was because I worked for a CEO who didn't get marketing and we had a whole plan in place. We were going to pursue the plan. We had the buy-in of the whole executive team. And one day he comes into the office and he says, I want to scrap that. And I want to focus on hiring this PR person I know and getting me on television. And I was like, no, <laughs> like at some point that will be a good idea. But right now we don't have any stories to tell. So nobody's going to want to put us on TV to talk about our product over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Like, and oh, by the way, we have to build a foundation of marketing for this company. And literally, and I'm not afraid to say no. Like I'm, yeah. I tell everybody I work for, like, I'm just going to tell you how I feel politely, but honestly. And 11 o'clock that night, I got an email from him saying I was fired because clearly we don't see eye to eye. And I wrote back and I was literally like, you're absolutely right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I today still talk about it as the best thing that ever happened to me because I could have stuck around that company longer, but it would have ended the same way eventually. And I'm really happy that, <laughs> that it ended when it did. Yeah. That's essentially how I got to start my company. It's just working with a CEO who didn't really get it and got lucky that we didn't see eye to eye and it didn't work out. And here we are, and I'm able to do a lot of the things that I've always wanted to do. I think that it's fascinating. Actually, I've been an employee of multiple organizations where I've been trying to do what I do right now on LinkedIn under the brand and the companies prevented me from doing it because yeah. of how they score marketing, because of how they think marketing is supposed to act, the way that they perceive how much leads are more important than building a video podcast, which clearly is working better <laughs> than generating a bunch of leads. And I've known this for since 2016-ish timeframe. And so I think that it's a, I think that a, if a lot of marketers are in that situation right now and it, that's something like that happens to them, it might hurt in the short term but you should know that it's going to make a lot of different things better. And it gives you an opportunity to go find an organization that will support you and help you grow and what you do things that are creative and forward thinking and different things like that. Yeah. I mean, the best results I ever got as a marketer after I sold my agency were, and, and I'm too new in the company I'm at now to be able to say whether yeah. it'll be here, but we're at another company I worked at in the last few years where I, and it was after I got fired and I joined this other company and told the CEO the whole story. I was very honest about what happened. And he looked at me more than once and just said, you're the expert. Do what you need to do. And you have my full support. I'm never going to second guess you. You don't need to get my approval. Just go. And I did that. And it was like, it was amazing. Like the results were incredible. <laughs> and, and it's not to say that like, I don't ever want to be second guessed or I don't want to have yeah. to explain what I'm doing. But like, but the thing that's so interesting about marketing, I was telling somebody this the other day, is that there's this phenomenon where because as consumers, we're all marketed to and we see a lot of marketing, 
a lot of people think that they know how to be a marketer. I'm with you on that one. And so you get a lot of, um, you know, backseat drivers. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Totally. Talk to me about your, your framework on fire first, aim later. Oh my gosh. This is probably, uh, it's like my greatest strength and also my greatest weakness. (laughs) So that's when somebody asked me in an interview, this is probably going to be my answer. Like what's your biggest weakness? If if you've ever done a disc profile, I'm a high D on disc, which is like, I like to be in charge. (laughs) Uh, I don't like to sit around and analyze things for hours before I make decisions, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm very self-aware about it. And so I, I do try to like put the brakes on myself a little bit, but I, I also have learned in marketing that perfection is definitely the enemy of good mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And with certain things, you got to get it right. But with a lot of things, especially things like messaging, it's not a science. There's no way mm-hmm. to prove that you're going to go to market with something that's that's 100% going to work. Like you've got to put the put your stuff out there. You've got to ship it. And then let the market tell you whether you got it right. It's the same and the thing. The key with paid is to ads. turn. Yeah. The key is to iterate and learn and move, right? Like the opposite framework that I've heard several CEOs that I didn't think really got marketing say, which is measure twice, cut once. Yeah. But oftentimes no. for companies, it's measure 30 times and never cut. Exactly. Especially <laughs> in a, I work in Series A companies. And you know, I tend to join right after the Series A funding comes in. There's usually a lot of pressure from the VCs to grow quickly because everybody's trying to position themselves mm-hmm. for the Series B. And if you go slow in that environment, you are gone. It's scary, right? It is scary. You've got to be willing to stick your neck out there. And somebody I work with recently said, and she's not a marketer, but she was like, I think I finally understand you. She was like, is it just like throw a ton of things at the wall and see what sticks? And 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 my answer was, well, sort of <laughs> like, yes, we try a lot of different things, but you know, there's a lot, there's like years of experience behind choosing which tax to throw totally, and knowing that they have a good odd of sticking, but yeah, I, you have to throw 10 tax with the knowledge that probably three of them are, are going to bounce and not work. And that's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. And when, and when you're doing new things, there's not necessarily going to be a roadmap for each different turn that you should make. Right. And so you need to go and you need to make a turn. And if it's the wrong turn, then you need to turn around and go and make a better decision. Right. And so like, we, the impact that is happening for my organization and myself on LinkedIn right now came through experimenting deeply into throughout 2019, right? Like nobody told me that we should do video marketing on LinkedIn. And now I think most people say that we're one of the strongest in video marketing on this platform because I just tried it and saw, and I got way less views, which is why most people don't execute on video because you, instead of getting a hundred thousand views, you get 10,000. But those 10,000 views are people that watched five minutes of video, not saw an impression of your text post. And so I could just, as a marketer with experience, you can know that that impression has a lot more value. And so those types of things, that was over like probably a six month period of time of experimenting from commenting on people's posts a couple of times a day to writing my own posts on variety of different topics with different depth to moving into video because it was actually the, the most effective and easiest way for me to communicate. And a lot of marketers will never go through that six months of process to figure out the thing that actually works. Yeah. How, I, how do you like build confidence with people to continue down those paths? Like, how, how do you do that? I, uh, you know, it's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm doing exactly what you're doing. Like I, I had a goal for myself in the past year to post every single day 
week, weekday for me mm-hmm. on LinkedIn and to test different formats. And, you know, for me, it hasn't been video marketing right now. I actually was doing that last year, but I shifted to try some different things to see what works. And then I, like, there was a little time period when I tried the broetry thing just to be like, does this actually <laughs> didn't work for me? Didn't feel right. Um, but I, I learn a lot from it too. And it's funny because I think to the outside world, it can look like narcissism, <laughs> but it's, sure. it's what we said earlier. It's like, I'm using myself as my own Guinea pig. And I feel like if I can develop the data and the information that shows that it works, that's the best way to convince other people. Cause I talk about this with my current CEO all the time. Like he's really open to doing more on LinkedIn. And I am a huge advocate of leading with personal brands and your company mm-hmm. marketing. And so he and I talk a lot about, you know, what works on LinkedIn and, little things like I'm, I'm sort of educating him over time on put the link in the comments and, you know, make sure your first line is really good because it's going to cut off the rest of it and just all kinds of little tips, tricks, and hacks. But I can at least come at it from the standpoint of like, here's why I know it works because I have the data to prove it. Mm -hmm. I want to throw out a statement here about something that I'm thinking and see what your reaction is. Right. And so my feeling as a marketer, I've seen what I would consider a decline in performance of SEO or not necessarily a decline in performance, but opportunities that are better somewhere else since 2014, 15 timeframe. My belief, and it's accelerating now, is that the core change that's happening is that B2B buyers are dramatically more connected with their peers, which facilitates a lot more word of mouth and information sharing than what was happening before where people didn't have that information, didn't have access to trusted peers like we do today, and therefore went to Google. Yes. <laughs> what do you um, think about that? I totally agree. But there is one or two caveats. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to SEO, I've seen the same thing, especially if you're like in a highly competitive space. It's really, really hard to get traction like it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, Some people report what... A lot of companies that come and talk to us about working together, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, is they get to a certain stage, which is typically like somewhere between 8 and 20 million ARR, and the growth slows down, and they're only getting SMB deals that they don't necessarily want anymore. And that's one of the main problems that I see in SEO right now. If you're selling you know, a product-led offering with a free trial motion with a max ACV of $50 a year, then you're probably going to need to figure out some type of organic marketing, right? And so SEO can be a better strategy. But when you're selling enterprise SaaS, I think there's a different research and purchasing process that buyers go through than going to Google and making a, you know, how do I solve this type of search? Yeah, there. the exception that I would say there is to that, and I saw it in, I worked for this company, Attila Security, mm-hmm. last year. And um, we had tremendous success with SEO, but it was because they sold something that had some really niche use cases. Like when we did our SEO research, there was like almost no search volume. And it's funny because when people, when you learn how to do keyword research uh, and, and you learn like about pillar content and topic clusters, everybody's like, you have to find something with enough volume. And I actually would say it's the exact opposite. I totally agree. So we had zero measurable search volume on Google and we built out it was for this thing called CSFC, which is a government cybersecurity thing. The only results were the NSA and and I think maybe Wikipedia. And we created a whole pillar and a topic cluster around it. We instantly dominated all the search results. And 
I think we even beat NSA for some of them, <laughs> which was amazing. And, and what I said to the team was like, I don't care if there's only 10 people searching this, because if they're searching it, they are without question a prospect <laughs> for us. And oh, by the way, the deal sizes for those projects were in the millions. And mm -hmm. so five customers from that pillar like could make our business. And it, and since I've left, those assets have continued to drive in incredibly highly qualified inbound leads. And so mm -hmm. I really think the highly, highly niche. And like right now, I'll sort of open up the kimono. The place I work right now, one of the things we sell is uh, a Shopify Plus app that helps e-commerce merchants block Capital One Shopping and Honey from auto-injecting discount codes at checkout. It's really niche, right? Mm. But nobody understands that that's even a problem in the e-commerce world. It's, it's people I use don't, Honey. Yeah, yeah. They're not <laughs> searching for it. And so, so what I found is there's a very small number of people searching for information on that, but nobody else has created content on it. So mm. we're, we're going to do that because we'll be the only one that shows up, right? That's mm. not going to last forever, but I feel like when you find those opportunities then you can get super niche -y. and this dates back a, dec a decade or more. I used to say to my team at my agency, if you Google something that has to do with anything our clients do and you find zero search results, sit down and write a fucking blog on that right now. <laughs> we'll rank one, right? Like those yeah. are the golden opportunities, but there are so few of those. Yeah. And okay. I think that the the one that you mentioned in like the long tail, no, you know, measurable search results in Google, I think that most marketers would not be incentivized to do that. Yeah. Because there's no search results. Some companies are measuring that team on website traffic, which is poorly aligned with actual business outcomes for the most part. When you think yeah. about where is the highest search volume versus where is the highest search volume that has buying intent, <laughs> completely different. Um, and so that one's interesting. We're going to move here to something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. I think about it at a company level and at a marketing level, um, which I'll give a little context here. Some of the things that I see, I see a lot of companies that glorify the things that unicorns are doing right now and saying that you're $30 million ARR software company should do that too. Or maybe they're not even saying that, but people that read that think that what translates for a $20 billion organization is going to translate to your $30 million ARR company, which is not. The same thing, it might not, let me not make a blanket statement on that. The same thing I think applies to marketers. And you mentioned this, the difference between a startup marketer and an enterprise marketer, and would love to talk through those things because I think there's dramatic differences in those two types of people, right? Like I would say that it's got to be pretty easy to be a brand marketer at Salesforce right now. You don't have to, you can do nothing right and definitely still hit your goals versus yeah. the, <laughs> the brand marketer at the series A startup, where if you do nothing right, then you're going to lose your job pretty quickly. <laughs> and so I think it's the, I think the interesting component and why I, I really enjoy, I would say companies that are you know, I would say sub a thousand employees is because you can really, really feel the impact of good marketing. We'd love to hear what you think about that. I, I'm biased, obviously, but I think you're right. Um, when you come into a very large company, the, you you walk into a house that's already built, right? Mm. And you're you might be like refreshing the paint on the walls, but but the house is built. When you walk into a startup, you are building the house from the ground up, like. I tend to come in as the first head of marketing. And so I'm walking into almost nothing. And oh, by the way, I'm not being given a huge budget. <laughs> it's not tiny because I won't I, go work I, someplace where I they, know what that's like. Yeah. But I'm not yeah. going to work anywhere where the expectations don't match the, the resources they're mm -hmm. giving me. But 
but I also know that I have to be really scrappy. Right. And I have to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. And if I just follow the, the traditional playbooks, then this goes to your point. Like when you listen to these webinars of what these unicorns have done, or you hear somebody who comes out of a big corporate marketing department talking about like their ABM plays and their webinar program, like I'm sure they work, (laughs) but those playbooks don't work at the startup level. You have to get creative. Like, yes, we do webinars at my company. But the first thing I said when I came in is we're making these webinars as short as humanly possible. So we never do webinars more than 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and we don't ever like introduce the speakers. (laughs) You know, it's like we're going right into the conversation. And I actually even like I've worked with my team to coach them on talking fast. Like we're designing all of our content for somebody who's type A and who doesn't have a second to waste. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's little things like that, but you you have to be creative. You have to be different by design. And you also have to be, I think the other secret to startup marketing is you have to be highly collaborative because mm-hmm. the most success I've ever seen has been when I've partnered with other companies like that are adjacent to me and that might be going after my same audience and mm-hmm. I draft off of them, but I, but in exchange, I give them a ton of my sweat equity. So it's mm-hmm. a, it's a nice relationship. Mm-hmm. Some would argue that's a little bit of an influencer play. Yeah. Sort you know, of, it's, you know, not, ex- not exactly the way that a B2C company would draw it up, but I find that there's a lot of other, other actions inside of like quote unquote influencer marketing, which I've tried to rebrand to brand collaborations just so B2B companies feel better about it that B2B companies could take advantage of. I've been doing quote unquote influencer marketing as a marketer since 2014, where we had physicians that were evangelists of our product that would go to conferences and speak about how they used it. That's influencer marketing 101. It's been happening for a very long time. There are so many other ways to use it. Would love to see, would love to learn about maybe some interesting ways that you're using it or some things that you've observed that you think are cool. I mean, I'm a big fan of it and you're right. There's people make assumptions. They hear like, your influencer, they think Kardashian mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> scratching the surface, right? Um, I'm using it in two ways right now and we're a B2B software. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I think I have probably two meetings a week with other, particularly on the e-commerce side of our product with other companies that are selling into the Shopify ecosystem to look at how I can go to market with them and structure those relationships in a way that's mutually beneficial. And then on the other hand, I just launched a new podcast for our company. And I mean, I'm, Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a prolific podcaster. I love the medium. And so I'll probably start a podcast everywhere I go. I, I've done it at every one of the last few companies I've been at. This one is uh, on the other side of our business where we sell into the ad tech world. It's, very, it's much more competitive, uh, more established players. And everybody on that side of the world is creating very technical content. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to just, I didn't want to put myself in that pool. So we're doing a podcast where we interview essentially our ideal customer profile, which is the leader of an ad ops team. And we're not talking about the product or even the problem we solve. We're talking about their careers. So it's all about the careers of an ad ops leader and they're amazing people. We don't talk about work. Every one of them goes and then shares our content. And oh, by the way, every one of them then tells me, here's who you should interview next. And so it's this flywheel of relationships. Relationships, 100%. Yes. And that's what I think it is at the heart of it. I'm I'm just a big believer, especially if it's an enterprise play. It's about relationships and you, and being a part of the conversations people are having. So, like mm-hmm. with our products, p- 
people don't go around talking about malvertising, which is what we solve on the ad tech side, unless they're under attack, which happens like every once in a long while, but they're having a lot of other conversations the rest of the year. So like, how can we be a part of those other conversations and build relationships with them so that Mm -hmm. when the time comes and they really do need something, they're going to come find us. We're not going to have to keep banging down their door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I'm sure it's happened to you as well, where I don't think a lot of people give credit to this part of a podcast where whether it's the people consume the content or they were on your show that therefore they are more aware of you. They have more of an affinity to you than relative to other competitors or alternatives to what you do. And therefore when somebody asks them about something that fits into your category, your top of mind and they recommend you and they've never used your product. We get, I I can't put a number on it, but we have several very large deals that have come through in that way where somebody that I've never met has never worked with us, has recommended our company because of our content or that they were on our podcast. I mean, I see people recommending you guys all the time, all Mm -hmm. the time. Your name comes up a lot. So I, I, I will bear witness to that. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Kathleen. So if you've listened to the show, You'll know what's coming next. If you haven't, I won't be mad. So if you have a question or two that you'd like to, to send over to me, you can drive the conversation for the rest of the episode. All right. So I do have some questions. The first one is, because you're somebody who does, as we discussed, post very frequently on LinkedIn, like me. And I want to know, what is your secret to always being able to come up with something to say every day or however often you post that really adds value? By building a system where I don't need to think about it, where it happens automatically. And so the way that we do it and the way that enables me to do it this way, because otherwise, I before I moved to video, I got to this point where I would sit down and not know what to write about and stare at the Microsoft Word cursor going, duh, duh, duh for three hours and not have anything to write. And I needed to make a change, right? Because it's like, oh, I've already said that. I've already talked about that. How do I do this? Where we've created infrastructure where we use other content mediums, like a podcast, like live Q&A, like events, like keynotes, like speaking slots, different things like that, that get recorded, which creates content that then all I need to do is add context with the copy. Nice. And so at this point now, there's more than a thousand videos in a box drive that I've never published that I can go in there and I can look and I can pick one that I feel compelled to write about that day. And then I just write the copy and then it's posted. And so that is, that's the hack that I figured out in order to make, cause I'm busy. If I don't hit the, if I don't hit the timeline to get that post out, then my whole calendar is full and I'm not going to get the post out. So I've, get, I've sort of like mastered this component of it but it comes down to being highly committed to the content strategy and then building mechanisms so that you like the content gets created on autopilot, so to speak. I love that. Cause that's something I definitely struggle with. And I, my system isn't great. I use a, a little like Apple notes mm-hmm. doc and I just have it open. And anytime I have a random thought, I pop it in there. I used, I used to do that. I eventually out, like out, outgrew it. It just stopped working for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely times when I sit down and I think, oh shit, (laughs) I got to come up with something. So, all right. Then I want to ask you the two questions that I actually always ask guests on my podcast. So you're going to come on my podcast and you're going to have to come up with two different answers next time. But um, I I always ask these because I'm fascinated by the answers. The first one is, you know, uh, we've talked about inbound marketing during this interview and how much it's changed in the last, call it 10 to 15 years. 
when you think about today and what what it represents today, who do you think, either a company or individual, is really like setting the standard for doing it right? Mm. So I'm not sure that I'm going to even answer your question, but my answer to this is that I believe that the overall idea or definition of inbound marketing to most people means content written on blogs for SEO. I think that's what most people think tactically. I don't feel that way. I think that inbound marketing is doing a variety of tactics outside of SEO and content that drive buyers to come inbound to you and ask to buy stuff. And that's pretty much how we define it on the podcast. And so I mainly define it as a buyer coming to you to buy through whatever means necessary inside of marketing to influence that thing to happen. If we're looking at like that definition, I don't want to toot my own my own horn here, but I truly think that it's myself and my company. Awesome. I think well, that I mean, we're I think paving the way in in new thing, new mechanisms to use to educate buyers in the places that they are, in ways that they want at scale, which then leads them to consider your product and come to you to ask your sales team to buy. I do think that that's really like what's happening here, and so I think by um, innovation inside of the most effective channels today, which I would consider LinkedIn, podcast, community, events, paid social, like those places. I think that we're um, specifically in like an enterprise B2B environment, the best. All right. Do I have time for one more question? Of course. All right. So the other one I always ask is most marketers that I talk to say that one of their biggest pain points is just keeping up with all the changes that are happening in the world of digital marketing. And so I am fascinated to learn, like, are there particular sources that you turn to, to keep yourself kind of on the cutting edge? The way that I keep myself on the cutting edge is by actually doing it. And so like, I'm not looking to someone's blog about the iOS 14 changes. I experienced them the day they happened in December, right? Like some people have been publishing it because it got rolled out to all users, but it's been impacting Facebook attribution since late December of last year. And so there's that component. There's all of the nuances inside of LinkedIn that I figured out. There's no blog publishing those things. Like I've, it's things that I've discovered that I don't think other people push the boundaries enough. And I think that most marketers should strive to get to that place where they learn by experimenting and executing on things that nobody else has done to get the results that they want, to get the results that they want to continue to get better and iterate. Most marketers need to get to that place where there's going to be, and I spent a lot of time in early in my career, reading books, taking courses, listening to other people, reading blogs, watching videos. And at some point, you want to get off that track where a majority of your learning happens on your own by doing. What's an experiment you're doing right now that you're particularly excited about? Let's see, what can I, I'm trying to think about for NDAs, what I can share. So um, we have several, we have several influencer marketing plays that I think uh, that we're experimenting with, we're collecting data. We intend to publish that data when it's um, when it's complete, and expect it to be very impactful in a way of setting it up in the cl- in the. And I'll talk through the experiment design in the in the report, but as closely mirrored to a B two C influencer play, but it acts more like partner marketing in B two B. And so. There's something in that that we're experimenting with right now with several several companies, and we expect maybe over, maybe in Q4 to publish something that would ideally 
my vision for it is it sets the stage and shows people the roadmap for if you wanted to do something like this in B2B, which is not going to play out like how I used to, I used to execute influencer marketing, selling $60 blankets on Instagram. I know very well how it works. Hand-to-hand combat with people with 5,000 followers that fit your profile, sending the messages, asking them whether or not they'll post about your product in exchange for 200 bucks or in exchange of a free product or different things like that. That's not how it's going to play out in B2B. And so all of those mechanics, right? So I feel like over time, I've tried to set the stage for how how paid social should get executed in B2B. We do it very differently than most people. I feel like we've set the stage for how LinkedIn organic should be executed in B2B and micro events and now influencers. And my objective overall, I've created a system where I can continue to innovate and basically model the behavior that I think that our customers should do. So you mentioned paid social and the fact that you guys have, have really nailed it. What's your philosophy around that? The core philosophy that most B2B companies can never get around is the fact that paid social is is distribution of content guaranteed and targeted to the people that you want, not conversion-based lead gen. Most companies can't get over that hump, so they would never do anything like what we do. But we we run media, paid media, targeted, account-based, persona-based, whichever fits the company's profile to distribute information across the entire customer journey, which creates brand affinity, education, awareness, understanding of certain things that prospects don't understand, that customers understand, that move them through a buying process in a very efficient way at scale. And so if you can't really track the direct response conversion and can't do those things, then you wouldn't be able to adopt our model. So it requires moving marketing to a holistic funnel through a website that's free from channel attribution. That's step one. And then if you can get over that, then you can start executing. Then that frees marketers up to do a podcast, to do paid social in the way that we do, to post on LinkedIn organic because it gets measured at the business level, not at the UTM level inside of LinkedIn ads. I think that just brought us full circle back to what we talked about earlier with working for a company or a CEO that is that gives you the latitude that doesn't need to see the ROI of every dollar you spend. Mm-hmm. It's very important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been operating that way since 2016. I'm fascinated that more companies have not moved to that direction for all the positive benefits that I said. Like one, it becomes way, way easier for a CMO to go into a board meeting and demonstrate their impact on the organization. When you look at it through website sourced revenue that create website sourced pipeline and revenue relative to other sources of getting revenue in the company like outbound sales or other things like that. Number one, you do that and you execute well, you should be contributing 40 to 75 or more percent of pipeline and revenue to the organization. Two, it creates a ton of flexibility for your marketers to do whatever works best to get more buyers to come to you and actually buy. Yeah, I love that. Cool. This has been awesome, Kathleen. Looking forward to being on your podcast shortly. Yes. This one will go up probably pretty soon. So I'll shoot you it over when it turns around. But I uh, have really enjoyed meeting you and look forward to staying in touch and meet on the podcast soon. This was fun and long overdue. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Good to have you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. 
Thank you and see you for the next episode. Thank you.